0: Thank <laughs> you. Cool. Thanks, Jamie. It's so much fun to be able to come and be with a church that just feels like getting reunited with old friends or kind of a family reunion. So it really, uh, it is a joy for me to be here with you this morning. Um, If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open it up uh, to First Corinthians chapter ten. That's where we're going to be for the majority of our time. But before we get there, I just want to start by framing this morning's conversation with the help of some of our psychologist friends. Um, If you were to talk to pretty much any psychologist out there, um, they would tell you that all human beings are born um, with certain core needs, certain core uh, desires. One of the people that has articulated that um, in a way that has been particularly helpful for me is Dr. Mark um, Laser. He writes, as a follower of Jesus, and he would say that those seven core desires that would be true for all of us, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, we would All be characterized by these things. Number one, um, to be heard and understood, just this reality that somebody gets me and my story matters to somebody. Number two, to be affirmed. That is specific affirmation, right? Last weekend, my six-year-old son Jack conquered his fear of the diving board. So there was a lot of affirmation in that moment of good for you, and Daddy's so proud, and you're so brave, and you're amazing, and we all need. Need that. At the same time, we also need a sense of blessing in our lives, which is, hey, daddy would have loved you even if you never jumped off the diving board, right? It's independent of performance. It's just, it's good that you're My son, it's good that you're a part of this church. You have value and dignity and worth just because you're made in the image of God. right? So those kind of balance each other out. Obviously, being safe needs to be on the list mentally, uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually. That makes sense. Um, To be touched, both romantically and non-romantically. To be chosen right? Which feels like you're hired. It feels like I am picking you to be a part of this thing, which is a little bit different than to be included, which feels like we want you to be a part of this group. We want you to be a part of this church. We want you to be a part of this book club. We want you on our flag football team, right? And if you kind of piece all of those together, you you realize that it's a fairly accurate description of some of our internal world, right? Laser calls them the seven desires of the heart. In fact, he wrote a book um, by that title, right? It's not bad to talk about the seven desires of the heart, but the apostle Paul will do you one better, right? You never want to get into a linguistic battle with Paul because he will dominate you even through translation. He still wins. So here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. This is out of the New American Standard Translation. The rest of the message will come out of ESV, but. I love the way NASB captures the intent of this language. Paul says this. Now, these things, talking about all of the trials and punishment that Israel went through during their 40 years in the desert, right? There's 400 years of slavery, and then God parts the Red Sea, leads his people out of slavery into this 40-year period in the desert. It's, you would think, a spiritual high point for Israel, and it turns out to be a little bit more of a spiritual mixed bag. Some days things are going really well, and some days we're making golden calves, right? It's kind of all over all over the place, um, and God is saying that Experience um, happened as an example for us. We're meant to learn a lot out of that 40-year period of time. And here's the point. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Right, what laser calls desires of the heart, Paul will call the cravings of the soul. Right, which is for me such um, helpful language because we all know what physical cravings are. Right, we know what it's like to wake up in the morning, feel tired the second you get out of bed, and just crave coffee with everything in you. Right, maybe that's not you. That's me. That's me. Some of you have natural energy. God bless you. Um, That's delightful. Um, I crave coffee, right? Maybe you natural energy people, you go for a run on a hot day and you know what it's like to crave that bottle of water at the end or to be hungry and crave food or just crave 15 minutes by yourself. We know what those cravings feel like and sometimes we know the intensity of those cravings. But what Paul is saying here is not only do our physical bodies have cravings but our souls have cravings and ultimately the cravings of our soul are stronger than the cravings of our flesh and they're more significant because it'll be the craving of your soul that will shape the trajectory of your life right so it means it is well worth it for us to spend some time asking the question what is your soul most craving this morning Right At the deepest part of who you are, what is your soul crying out for, right? for? For some of us, you go back to Lasers' List, it is a need to be affirmed. Right? It, it's a need for somebody somewhere to tell you that you're doing a good job as a mom. Right? It's the need for somebody somewhere to tell you you're doing a good job as a husband or as an employee. It's, it's for somebody to tell you that your work matters or it's for somebody to invite you to be a part of, of a group. Right? Maybe it is for the blessing of a parent. And maybe you're wrestling through, my soul craves that and I'm not sure I'm ever going to get that. And I'm not sure I'm ever going to hear those words from my father or hear those words from my mother. But either way, whether we think that craving is going to be satisfied or not be satisfied, it is a significant component of who we are. And one of the things I would love to convince you of, it would probably take a a, a separate talk that we don't fully have time for this morning, but when it comes to the cravings of your soul, it is absolutely impossible to ignore them, and it's absolutely impossible to suppress them. At, At the deepest level of who you are, just say no is not an option, right? Uh, You're not going to be able to ignore this aching need for a father's blessing. You're not going to be able to suppress this desire to be included. The questions that are going to shape your life is not whether or not you can suppress this, not whether or not you can dominate it, but how are you going to satisfy the cravings of your soul? What are you going to do with it, right? You have this God-given desire to be safe, all right, how how are you gonna satisfy that? Right? You have this God-given desire to be included. How is that going to be satisfied? Option A, in Christ and his plan for your life, which, spoiler alert, that's where I'm going to land. Um, right, No surprise. You're like, yep, that's option A. That's the church option. That's probably what the vast majority of us, whether you even consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not, you walk in the room you're like, yeah, okay. I'm interested to see if God can satisfy the cravings of my soul. Right, That's option A. And option B is to satisfy those cravings apart from God. and his plan for our lives, oftentimes in sinful ways, right? So when we talk about temptation, which is really gonna be our focus for this morning, I'm using a a very particular understanding of temptation or at least very specific language around temptation. The way I would define temptation is the desire within us to satisfy our soul's cravings apart from Jesus and his plans for our life, right? It's that option be approach right so so you go back and say hey you have this god-given desire to be chosen and wait i i can meditate on the truth of the gospel i can meditate on the things that we've been talking about this morning that you are chosen by god to be adopted into his family that you are beloved that you are wanted that you are cherished right and, and you can also experience that on human levels that are fulfilling of God's plans and purposes for your life. Or some of us know what it is to say, hey, you know what? It seems strange, but this desire to be chosen is so profound that the only way I can seem to ever live it out is through a one-night stand. Because at least in that moment of all the different girls in the bar he could have brought home, he chose me. Right? Of all the different guys that she could have gone home with, she chose me, and as much as it feels strange and as much as we want to pretend that the one night stand or the random hookup is just a matter of hormones and biology and circumstances and probably tequila, um, it also has something to do with somebody choosing you and somebody saying, "In this moment, you matter to me right what are you How are you going to satisfy?" The cravings of your soul in Christ and his plan or in something apart from Christ and his plan. And what we want to look at this morning is not just sort of a philosophical discussion of how temptation works or the the cravings of our soul. But we want to try to be specific about how it is that we fight against that temptation. Because every single one of us experiences temptation every single day of our lives. Right? There is not one of us that does not understand this dichotomy of, yes, there's needs in my soul, there's longings in my soul, and I get what it looks like to fulfill them in Jesus, but in this moment it just feels like anger would taste so good. In this moment it just feels like bitterness is going to satisfy me. It feels in this moment like a few too many drinks is really what I want. And, and we're sometimes horrified by this internal gravitational pull towards what we would admit in our better judgment is the wrong choice. Right? How, how we could all say, obviously I want to be faithful to my marriage, yet we can find these moments where you're like, wait, why does adultery feel appealing in this moment? Right? Why am I tempted to fudge the report a little bit? Why am I tempted to violate my own ethics? Right? That's what we're, We all know that feeling. Right? None of us have graduated from there. Right? If you think that there is a level of spirituality that will exempt you from temptation, you're holding out for something that Jesus himself never experienced during his time here on earth. Remember Matthew's gospel? He's baptized by John the Baptist, and then he is led by Satan into the desert to be tempted by, for 40 days. Right? Jesus, while he was here on earth, experienced temptation. Right? Temptation is part of our normal humanity, or at least part of our fallen humanity, part of our common humanity. The question is, what do you do with it? Right? And one of the things that you have to embrace about this is that temptation absolutely never fights fair. Right? If you're looking for a fair fight, um, don't expect it from temptation. It never fights fair and it never comes at you alone. Right? Temptation is the kind of criminal that always brings accomplices with him. Right, she she never travels alone. She always brings accomplices with her. And so much of our battle against temptation is actually a battle to defeat those accomplices. Because if we can sort of separate temptation from his friends, we are going to up the odds of ourselves being able to fight that battle successfully, significantly. Right. So what I want to do this morning is, out of First Corinthians chapter ten, look at um, what. The common um, accomplices are kind of what are these four things that come with temptation, and figure out how we can start to defeat those in our lives, therefore giving us a greater chance of victory against temptation itself. Right, relatively simple game plan, um, but I think it's going to be really helpful for us this morning. At least it is. It is is for me. It's convicting for me. Right, temptation's favorite accomplice, and and by the way, this is like the ultimate one. The other three are probably a subset of this big one. Is is pride. Right, you can kind of hang everything on pride if you want to. First Corinthians chapter ten verse twelve. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. In in other words, this is speaking to those of us who think that we are either exempt from temptation, or we can manage temptation, or this isn't really an issue. Maybe this is one of those talks that all those single 20-somethings in Arlington need to hear, but we're grown up, and we're mature, and we don't do temptation anymore, right? The Bible's like, get real. That's the Cliff Notes version, but it's like, get real. Like, of course, we all face temptation, and it all stems back to pride, right? Just to get it on the record, when it comes to pride and temptation, pride shows up in our lives one of three different ways, right? Number one, it shows up with this idea that we can get really close to the line without crossing it, right? It's that thing in us that feels like we have enough internal strength and enough internal judgment that we can walk right up to the ethical line but somehow we'll, we, we'll know where to stop, right? We'll, we'll know that I can get, look at that. I can get like a third of my foot. Huh. I can go a half and I'm still cool. And I, have, I haven't fallen, right? And, and we think, oh, look, I can just live in this moment. And then what we do is pride kicks in and it's like, well, look, I bet you could just go one heel over there. Huh. Doing Okay. A little more weight on this leg than I'd like, but I'm okay. I'm cool. I'm getting away with it. And we play this game where we inch up and we inch up. And we always think, don't worry, I'll stay in control of the situation. Right? And all Satan wants to do is lure you into that moment where you're like, oh, you're doing great on the edge there, buddy. You're awesome. And then the wind of temptation blows and whoom over you go. Right? It's a form of pride that causes us to try to get as close to the line as we possibly can. right? By the way, for some of us, that's not our issue. right? For some of us, we're actually a little bit further down the road. We're at a point where we know we've crossed a line, or at least technically we've crossed a line, but we haven't gotten caught. We haven't gotten hurt. Nobody else has gotten hurt. So we have this sense that we're getting away with it. right? We have this sense that, okay, I get it. If I were to fully open my life up to Alan, he would probably recommend that I live in a different way. I get it, but I'm fine. You know what? I'm off the stage and it's cool. I can stand on the speaker, I think. I don't know Um, if we buy you a new one, Um, right? Um, I'm cool. It's good. Nobody's getting hurt. Who cares? Leave your little church ethics behind, right? Right. Right? In all my sermons, um, the villain are always my two sons, right? four and six years old. That is a role in the sermon that they earn. Um, right? They're always the example of debauchery and sin. I do have a two-year-old daughter, and every once in a while, um, she does something wrong. It's almost always the boy's fault. Um, but... <laughs> Every once in a while. right? The other day, um, we're going through the living room, and she's there, and she's leaping from the coffee table onto the couch. And helpful father that I am, I'm like, hey, Emma, I wouldn't do that if I were you. You were going to get hurt. So she moves from the coffee table to the end table and jumps onto the couch. And I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't do that. You're, you're going to get hurt. And she's like, Daddy, I'm a good jumper. Um, uh, and she kind of goes around and she does it again. And I'm like, hey, honey, daddy loves you. You got to stop jumping on the couch or we're, we're going to have a little bit of a problem. And she goes, okay, dad. So I think I've won the battle. Um, no, that was the okay, dad, you know, slash you're a fool. Um, right. So she gets off. She goes to the end table one more time and she jumps And this time, rather than getting away with it, she kind of smacks her little face on the hard back of, of the couch. And she looks at me, and she starts crying and sobbing and screaming with this look in her eye that it's like somehow my fault. Like if I just hadn't bought the couch, none of this would have happened. Right, And she's there, and she's just so upset. And, of course, loving father that I am, I'm like, serves you right. Uh, Mommy's in the kitchen. Um, No, just kidding. That's bad parenting. Um, uh, I'm like, oh, daddy loves you, right? But what's the issue? She thinks she could jump and not get hurt, and that's where some of us are. And you have no idea which jump is going to bring crisis into your life right? Nobody wakes up and says, I know this Thursday is going to be the day that it all comes crashing down. It just is this Thursday is going to be the time that you jump one too many times and all of a sudden the consequences of everything come rushing into your life. And maybe the third form of pride is that I would never go down that road, right? It's the thing inside of us that looks at certain forms of temptation and we think, no, no, no. I'm too good for that, right? I'm, I'm too, I'm I'm better than the people that fall for that. Right? Can you imagine a gambling addiction? How sad, right? Oh, can you imagine people that use drugs? I would never do that. Can you imagine? I would ne- I'm just better than that, right? You know, none of us want to admit to that way of thinking out loud. I'll tell you where it, where it usually shows up in the church. The litmus test is how you react when other Christians fall into sin if you really want to watch this play out just go check Twitter the next time a celebrity pastor gets himself in trouble you know, which seems to be about every six days so you don't have to wait long but right, you'll see and there's people that are able to respond with humility and compassion and empathy and grace and forgiveness and love and mercy and then there's other people that resort instantly to judgment and condemnation and criticism and man look at you we've seen this coming for a long time Right? how do you you react forget the celebrity pastor how do you react when somebody in your life gives in to temptation how do you react when somebody in your life falls for that same old sin do you react with anger or do you react with grace right, do you react with compassion or are you just ready to to eliminate them from your life right There's a lot of different ways that we see pride starting to well up inside of us, but the book of Proverbs is clear that we've got to take it seriously. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, right? A lot of us have memorized that verse at different times. The question is not whether we've memorized Proverbs 16, 18. The question is whether we're examining our heart and seeing how much pride is in us. Are you near the line? If you're playing that game, just take today as an intervention from the Spirit of God that brought you here this morning on the day that he brought me here to share this message. And it's not random, and it's not coincidence that you're here. And maybe you get to play it smart, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to walk back from the line. Maybe you're living on the speaker, and you need to have a couple hard conversations this week, but you need to get back over the line Maybe you just need to pray that God would give you the grace to soften your heart towards those who have fallen across the line, right? Now, pride, that's always amorphous. That's always, you know, how prideful are you? I don't know. It's a great community group question because, you know, it leads to long conversations without clear answers. So you can debate that in your community group all week. Am I prideful? Am I not? I don't know. Um, Here's some things we can be really specific about, though, right? The second accomplice that comes with temptation is isolation, 1 Corinthians 10 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, right? Temptation's favorite lie is that you are the only one who is tempted by this. You are the only one who would give in to this. No one else would understand your particular recipe of temptation. No one else would accept you. If everybody else knew the way you were tempted, they would judge you. They would reject you. They would hate you. You. They would ask you to find a new church. If you, if you just opened up and said, not only this is what I've done, but this is what I'm tempted to do. Right? This is what goes through my mind sometimes during the week. Right? This is sometimes what I think about when I'm sitting at a traffic light. This is some of the things in my heart I feel when I come home and the house is chaotic and the kids are leaping off the couch and drawing on the walls with crayons. This is what's happening in my world. This is what's going on. And for so many of us, we say, I just can't go there because that's way too ugly. And I think what Paul would say is, Because it is so ugly, you have to go there, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way in his classic book on on community life together. He says, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, that's sin, the more disastrous is his isolation. He will go on to say that he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. That's why a church has to be much more than a Sunday morning event. It has to be a community that you join. That's why community groups are such a big deal at our church, and I know they are here at Grace Hill as well. The idea behind community groups is not that you're desperately bored and just need one more thing to do every week. That's just not life for Any of us, right? If you are, Alan has like a hundred volunteer opportunities. He would love to talk to you later. He will keep you busy. Man, you tell Alan you're bored at your own risk, right? But I just don't think that's us. I mean, that's not, I've never met that person in DC that's like, yeah, pastor, could you pray for me? I'm just hopelessly bored. I just go home, and I'm there, and I don't know what to do. And I mean, no, that's not it. It's not like Alan and Nick were like, man, there's just, okay, we'll give them something to do. At least we got Thursday night covered, you know. Other than that, go join a bowling league. You know, I mean, it's like you know, we can cover you on a Tuesday. We, we got one night a week. We can help you out. Right? It's also not that we think you're so socially awkward that you need help making friends. Right, You're not trying to buy into a system that will make friends for you. That's called a sorority. Right, That's a different deal. Um, just kidding. Sorry. Um, couldn't resist. Um, right, it, that, That's not the deal. It's not that you're socially awkward and can't make friends. It's that we need to put ourselves in environments that cultivate this kind of intentionality. Now, the first time you show up at a community group, are they gonna be like, oh hey Nick, it's nice to meet you. Would you like to tell us the cravings of your soul, please? In what ways are you most tempted to dishonor God? Right? If you were to wreck your life this week, how would you do it? Right? That that is sort of an awkward icebreaker, right? They're not gonna do that. They're gonna be like, hi, um, what's your name? And then because we're in DC, they'll be like, and what do you do, right? Other parts of the world would care about your family or where you live or, you know, anything. But here in D.C., it's like, what do you do? And we'll get through that and we'll start to get to know you and go slow. And ultimately, you'll start to connect to some people. And ultimately, you'll be able to have conversations like this. And ultimately, those conversations will transform your life. And ultimately, those conversations will transform your battle with sin. Sin demands to have a man by himself. There's so many reasons why community doesn't work for people in 21st century America. And I, and I understand those, and schedules are crazy, and kids' soccer teams practice all the time, yet still chase the ball around like a herd of cats. Like, but they practice all the time. They, you know, again, schedules are crazy, and it's back-to-school nights, and it's this, and it's that, and work, and travel. But I just wonder how many of us are isolated because of our pride? We can blame it on the calendar. We can blame it on the job. We can blame it on we're just about to close the deal. We can blame it on a thousand things. But maybe it's our pride that keeps us by ourselves because we're just not willing to let people in. Here's what happens. When you let people in, all of a sudden they're able to start to speak the realities of the gospel into your soul. And it'll help you balance the next two things, right? Because temptation is going to try to mess you up in one of two different ways. Um, The the first is it's going to try to lull you into self-reliance. Right? Self-reliance is the thing in us that's like, man, I got this. I can manage this. I can handle this. I just need a couple of daily affirmations. I just need a new gate filter. I just need a new something and I'll be able to manage this. And probably the theological heart of this verse is Paul warning us against the foolishness of self-reliance. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and God is faithful, All of a sudden, the character of God is the central issue here. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. That is a pretty shocking verse when I read it. That's one of those ones I go back to over and over and over again, particularly in the moments where temptation seems irresistible. Right, Even in those moments where my muscle memory, my emotional muscle memory, my spiritual muscle memory, my relational muscle memory just makes it so easy for me to go back to the same old sins over and over again. In the moments where it feels like it's inescapable, in the moments where it feels like it's unavoidable, in the moments where it just feels like, look, that's part of how I'm wired. I'm just always going to give into that. I go back and I'm like, okay, no, wait, I'm my internal I'm always going to give in has to somehow submit itself to Paul's God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Do you notice what God's doing? God is putting his character on the line. He's not saying like, let's analyze the sources of your temptation and how much of that comes from a father wound and oh, okay, and the circumstances of your temptation, all the particularities. God's like, yeah, I get the particularities of this situation, but can we talk about my steadfast love for you? And can we talk about a promise that I will always make a way of escape for you? God will always make a way. Right, that's one of those. Like, whew, do I really believe that? I mean, is there always a way of escape? And I think when we reflect on it, we're like, but yes, there is. Right, and it's oftentimes not even that hard to find it. Right? moments where I'm home and you know you feel like things are getting a little tense in the kitchen as Laura and I are catching up at the end of the day. And you're like, uh-oh, this could lead, this could go in a not great direction. Like, and the spirit of God's in me just being like, just shut up, man. Don't do it. Don't do it. Just keep your mouth shut. Like, you don't have to engage with that. Do not bring your mother-in-law into the conversation. Don't do it. Stop. Oh, shoot, you did it. Like, okay, now you repent, um, right? It, it, it's not that hard. God is really good at helping us see the way of escape. Right? Th- th- just think, think for a second how much the Fairfax County Fire Marshal loves you. Probably never thought that one before, but just think about it. It would be illegal for us to be in here right now because the Fairfax County Fire Marshal cares about you so much. It would be illegal for us to be here if there were not exit signs over all of the ways of escape if a fire broke out, right? I mean, there's two in the front, there's two in the back. I feel like I'm doing the pre-flight walkthrough here. You know, get your tray tables up. Um, they're here. And common sense says that those need to be really clearly illuminated. Yet we play this game where we almost assume that our Father in Heaven, who of course loves us infinitely more than the Fairfax County Fire Marshal, that our Father in Heaven makes the way of escape, but then he hides it on us. Right, the God's up there playing this game of like, I know there's a way. First you know, Corinthians ten, I'm obligated. It's out there, but I doubt you'll be able to find it. You know, I certainly don't want you to be able to find it in the heat of an argument with your spouse. I certainly don't want you to be able to find it in the heat of the temptations of Saturday night. I certainly don't want you to be able to find it in the moment of ethical temptation at your job. Of course, it's it's, it's you know, it's obscure, but it's out there somewhere. It's probably in the original Hebrew. No, God is up there being like, hello, there's a way of escape. You don't have to go down this path. But the miracle of the gospel is not that God clearly illuminates the path of escape. Most of the time, the path of escape is otherwise known as common sense. The miracle of the gospel is that God loves you enough that he has sent his son to die for you for all the moments that you refuse to go through the extraordinarily clearly labeled door. And when we place our faith in that son, he gives us his spirit who is willing not only to point the way out of the door, but also to carry us in the moment when we need it. Right, that's why we've been singing about grace all morning long. Right? The goal for you this week is not to be sitting here thinking about what your particular form of temptation looks like right now and walk out of here being like, yeah, I'm going to do better this week. You're right. This is nonsense. I am going to the gym. Nobody needs three desserts. That's ridiculous. I'm not doing that. That's it. Anger, you and I are breaking up. I'm going to leave you at the altar today. I'm done with anger. Woo. I'm going to try hard. Yeah, it's going to be great man get ready yeah get ready because you're gonna go out into the real world which is a festival of temptation right you're gonna go <laughs> to your job which is a festival of temptation god forbid a family reunion i mean right, i mean just all of these things that are going to entice you to sin in so many ways and if you walk out of here thinking oh i got it man you're gonna fall flat on your face if you walk out of here thinking okay the battle is real And one of the ways I get myself in trouble is by thinking I have it all under control. God, I'm just gonna trust you. Way of escape. You don't have to make it clear and you're gonna have to carry me through the door. But you're good and you love me and you're for me and I'm trusting you. So God, just carry me through the door. You go out with that attitude, man, you're gonna be doing really well or God's gonna be doing really well through you. That's the way we need to fight this thing. But one of the things I love about Paul is he's not just a a scholar and a church planter and a theologian. The guy's a pastor. You just know that this guy has lived so much of his life with real people because there's so many times in Scripture where you watch Paul, he's writing and obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he delivers incredible truth. Self-reliance is not going to deliver you. You need to trust the Spirit of God. He's going to make a way and he's faithful and he'll get you through the door. And it's like Paul can see the abuse coming so he does a quick course correct in the next verse, right? Paul's very aware that it would be possible if we just ended the sermon at verse 30 to be like, oh, I love it. I got nothing to do. This is great. You know, maybe join a community group, you know, deal with pride, but that's a lifelong thing. And God's just going to somehow mystically carry me through the door that delivers me from temptation. And guess what? If I sin, it's all his fault. That's great. I'll just blame him and come back and sing some songs next Sunday. Paul's also like, yeah, you know what? The other accomplice that comes with temptation is, it's complacency. Right? Somehow we need to carry our, our lack of self-reliance. We need to carry our dependence on God in a way that doesn't make us personally complacent. Right? It's like that Philippians 2 idea that you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who is at work in you. Right? It's kind of this both and. It is divine grace and divine mercy. And it's 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Get really far away from temptation. Right, God's Spirit may lead you to make some decisions this week. Some of us, maybe God's Spirit is going to lead you to get rid of the internet connection at home, or get rid of the smartphone. I promise you, God's Spirit wants you to get rid of Tinder. Right? I hundred percent. It's in Proverbs somewhere. Um, Get that nonsense off your phone. Right. I'm amazed the number of dating, engaged, just friends, couples in our church that I have to say, yeah, but here's the deal. If you're not married, I don't care how much money you're trying to save on the weekend away. Stop sharing a hotel room. Don't get, come on. Are are you actually trying to fight the battle of temptation or are you just looking to make it as easy and luxurious as possible to give in, Some of us need to go home and stick every single credit card we own in a shredder. Some of us need to be willing to share our budget and our monthly spending habits with a trusted friend. You need to open up that area of your life. Some of us need to talk about what's actually going on in our marriages. I've talked to people in our church. I've said, I think you have a spiritual obligation to ask for a transfer to a different office or a different division because the largest source of temptation in your life is working three cubes down from you and you got to get away from her. Well, I can't and this, career suicide. I'm in the right division. This is where all the VPs come from. I'm like, is your marriage worth that? Oh, bro, I'm good. Uh, yeah, you know, but it's cool. I would never do anything. This is just three cubes, fine, lunch, Chipotle, Whatever's bad ever happened at a Chipotle, for crying out loud. You just keep walking. And then the wind of temptation comes. Right. Right. What, what, what does it look like to be smart, to say way of escape, spirit of God, but you know what? I, I can do a little something here. Temptation isn't going to fight fair, and you don't have to fight stupid. right? You, you can do some things in life that will enable you to resist. I love how John Owen says it. right? He wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, which is worth buying for the title alone. But he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Right? Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And of course, with all of that, I I, I pray that you go home thinking about, wait, am I over self-reliant or am I complacent? Am I too isolated? Where's pride? There's a lot for us to chew on from this morning. And underneath all of it is the reality that the best defense is a good offense, that you can be in community, you can be trusting the spirit of God, you can be resisting complacency, you can be moving towards humility, but you still have those cravings of your soul. There's still something in you that wants to be chosen. There's still something in you that needs to be heard and understood, right? There's still something in you that needs to be affirmed. How are you going to satisfy that? It's not enough just to say, oh, option B, no, I'm not going there. We have to do the work of learning how to satisfy the cravings of our soul in Christ and in his plan for our life. And that's ultimately my prayer for you, right? That your soul would be so satisfied in Jesus and the beauty of who he is that all this other stuff, it would just come to look increasingly ridiculous the more you know him. And the more you're like, you're the one who satisfies my soul. You're the one that satisfies the hunger and thirst of my soul. And I love you. And I want to give my life to knowing you more. That's what we're ultimately after. Let's pray. Father, we need you to come right now by the power of your spirit. And we need you to satisfy our souls. God, that's what I am asking you to do. And God, I pray that even in these next minutes, you would help us be honest just with ourselves, but what our souls are truly craving this morning. Father, I pray you'd give us the gift of self-awareness. I pray you'd give us the ability to be real. And Father, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would satisfy our souls this morning. Don't let us leave here with hungry and thirsty souls. Meet us. Meet us in such a way that we are transformed. Meet us in such a way that we know that we've encountered you. Would you do that now? Not because we deserve it, but because you're merciful. We love you. And we trust you. And we just pray for your grace in the week to come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.